Coming up on Office Hours with Carp and Loge, Trump is in chains, I guess. Uh, Elon Musk needs professional help. And we talk about why you should give to colleges. Check it out. People of the pod, welcome. Welcome back to uh, season four, episode five, episode six. I don't know. I'm losing track of Office Hours with Carp and Loge. As always, at this time, and occasionally in this place, I am Peter Lowe, your co-host, an associate professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University, and a strategic communications consultant, and I am joined by, as always, Dave Carp, associate professor at George Washington University in the School of Media and Public Affairs. We've been doing this for a year, and you still haven't come up with a better thing to call our listeners than pod people. Well, now it's a thing. Now it's a thing. They're people of the pod. They come up to me and say, hey, I wanted people to pod. No, Do they nobody's do that? No, no, they, they haven't. Yeah. No, no, actually they haven't. But it seems like the kind of thing they would do if they loved us. I'm just going to point out that <laughs> Peter Loge is a professional communicator. And with a year of practice, that's all he's got. And, and worse yet, people pay us or pay somebody a lot of money to teach them how to do this stuff. So one day, this will be you. Let that be a warning. Major in public health or something. Where my wife teaches and she was named the professor of the year. So obviously, no, we covered on the last episode. I'm just saying, we just get saying. it. Zoe is much more impressive than you are. I think yes. everyone knew that, whether or not they knew her. That's 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 fair. That's fair. <laughs> I get that a lot, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. We got a so, lot to cover this. Uh, today. We do. First, of all, we, uh, thank you, Alana, for putting up with this this stuff. Thank you to our loyal listeners. Uh, follow us, rate us, tell your friends, and we're going to dive into a bunch of stuff. Dave has stuff. I don't think our listeners have friends. That's why they connect with us. <laughs> but they bond with us because they're like, I'm friendless too. I'm gonna listen to Carbon Lodge. So that's it, there's a, that's called parasocial relationships. One of my favorite one of my favorite theories in uh, in communications. And I'll drop that in the footnotes. So there's your first uh, there's your first <laughs> footnote talking point: parasocial relationships. We're we're recording this on Tuesday before 10 a.m. So Donald Trump is not yet in handcuffs or making his post handcuff speech. But that's going to happen by the time our listeners hear this episode. What are your predictions? What's he going to say? How much money is he going to raise off of the t-shirts of his mugshot? Well, he's already raising a ton of money online. Uh, there have been already been reports about how much money he's raising on this. The outrage machine is there. That money's not going to help Republican candidates. Um, it's well documented that mostly it's an inside scam. Grifter's going to grift. There's been a surge in his public opinion support. Oh, my gosh. You know, he's winning, he's winning, this is it. Everybody knows that surge is going to drop. We're going to, you know, resort to where we were last year and five years ago, six years ago, where his national popularity rating is going to hover in the low to mid 40s. I'm so tired of this story. Yeah. So the the one thing that I will note, I noticed yesterday a bunch of people were making jokes about how like this is his white Bronco moment, right? Like the um, the coverage of, Trump's plane is about to take off from Florida to land in New York, where tomorrow he will be arrested or he will turn himself in. Like, I don't think this moment matters for anyone except for media with flagging ratings. And also it will probably matter for media with flagging ratings, right? Like, I think there's probably a lot of juice in this for just getting people to tune in and whether they love him or hate him, like, like this is a reason to focus on on him, not because of the latest racist stunt, but instead because dude is facing justice. And while he's dealing with this, 
the other bigger deal things like the the January 6th stuff and the keeping a bunch of classified documents. I saw something about like apparently he was aware that the U.S. government had to pay, I think, 18 million to uh, Nixon to get his classified documents back. So I would not be surprised if it turns out that the reason he kept those classified documents is he's like, I can get some money out of this, right? Like somebody pay me, which is very illegal. So like those will come up too. And it does mean that, well, nobody can win the Republican primary over the course of the next year because no votes are being cast. Uh, I talked to my students about the Dean campaign a few weeks ago. And it was like, they, you know, most of my students didn't really know who Howard Dean was. And I was like, I'll tell you, he really was the front runner. It's just, that's not worth anything because no votes are cast. And by the time the votes were getting cast, he, he lost his status and he was out. So like nobody can win or lose over the next year, but it does seem like he's now going to spend a bunch of time having the nation's focus be on him, but because of his court cases, that'll be really good for TV ratings. And that will constrain both him and his opponents in terms of like how they operate. We're going to get very tired of it, very bored of it, because it's still a year until any votes can actually get cast. In the meantime, it's just cheap entertainment. But like, I'm not saying I won't eat any popcorn. Like, But it's, I mean, pundits going to pundit because hockey had something to talk about and everybody's going to say, see, I told you so. And the white Bronco moment, I respect, in part because of the old schoolness. And the Howard, the orange that our viewers on YouTube and people do watch us can see is from the Howard Dean campaign. Like, yeah, it's, but in terms of political dynamics and the underlying dynamics of the race, it freezes the race where it's been frozen, which is it's all about Donald Trump. DeSantis was always going to be the first, not Donald Trump. All the cultural anger, all the rage, none of the indictments and the, none of the porn stars. You've now got Asa Hutchinson stepping in to say, look, I'm actually a legitimate conservative who's not a circus clown. Mm-hmm. And he's hoping that that's where it shakes. That's what Ambassador um, Nikki Haley is also hoping it shakes. But it's all, it's the reality show, which is the Trump show. And he's monetizing his own mayhem to feed his ego and pay off his debts, which is all he has done for his entire career. Right. I'm only a little bored. We talked on the on the pod, God, back when it happens, uh, about the showdown between Ron DeSantis and Disney. Uh, yes. And I recall you saying at the time, like, what he, he doesn't want the, the win against Disney. He wants the PR win. He got that in the short term, but now we're finding out. And I feel like this, for me, this is the theme of the week, is like the past week or so of tech and politics have both been a great calling card for why... Uh, people should get degrees in the things that we teach. Because it turns out while strategic political communication isn't rocket science, uh, it is not something that you want to do without, right? So like he passed the, it, like they, they, he, he passed his like anti-Disney measure and before the Reedy Creek, you know, whatever like board got sunset, they're like, all right, well, we're going to pass some new binding rules that include the rule that the new board can't do anything until King Charles and his descendants have been dead for 20 something years. And they wrote it so that like, that will hold up, like that shit will hold up in court. And like, that was well noticed in advance, but since he didn't have anyone on his team who was actually reading the news that he was fighting with, they just didn't notice it. And now he looks like a chump, entirely uh, self-enforced error because he didn't do the work of saying, if you are going to take on Disney, you should assume that they're going to respond and, I don't know, pay attention to the response and strategize. Come on, man. You are not ready for prime time. I think it's hilarious. 
I, I think I mean that's so funny, but again, it's only to the people who are paying attention to that. And good on Disney for coming up with that little clever, like, how can we do this to lock in the policy when we know we're gonna get anyway? Like that's kind of cool. So lawyer went, I know. And that was a great meeting. Hey, that's super cool. Mm-hmm. How about 50 years? No, 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 that's extreme. We'll do 20. That seems reasonable, right? Like yeah. I want to be in that conversation. But this still allows DeSantis to go on the campaign trail and say, I told that pretend cartoon mouse, we don't believe in your woke, aggressive agenda, Walt Disney, who was none of those things, whatever. But like he still gets to um, take it on in California and do the thing with all the rage, with none of the indictments and none of the porn stars. He's a vehicle for that stuff. I'm going back to my belief that I, like I, I have said on the pod before and keep saying it, that I think he is ultimately a Hobbesian candidate. I think he is, is nasty, brutish, and short. Um, and I think that's going to describe his campaign. Like he's already fading a little bit, partially because the campaign's becoming about Trump again, which it always was, but partially because I think the deeper the party elites look at DeSantis, the more they're going to be left just thinking like, really him? And this does tie in there. We're like, this isn't going to be a like mass public disqualifying event, but it is a moment where all of the elite validators who should be lining up behind him are like, oh, you screwed that up? Come, really? Now we look now we look like putzes. Um and it's like this is blocking and tackling for strategic political communication. Like be aware, like ha, okay, they, they like they they're they they've got this Reedy Creek board for another few months. They're gonna try something. Yeah. The other thing, this is a tangent, but uh, the other thing that this reminds me of, I've been saying on generative AI for a while with copyright that I think a major moment that hasn't happened yet is. Disney's like Disney deciding what they think of generative AI and pointing their lawyers towards whatever they want to point it to. Like right now we've got a lawsuit from Getty Images about uh, image-based AI stuff. And like, that's a serious lawsuit, but Getty does not have the sheer scale of lawyers to throw at this that Disney will. And like, this is just a reminder of like, yeah, you know what, a company that big, when they decide what their interests are, they um, get very creative and effective like that's going to come on generative ai and it, it's just a reminder of like once the content industries decide that they have some interests and direct lawyers to defend them they are sophisticated in their actions you know, i mean i used to lobby on copyright so i've lobbied for some of those guys and I absolutely agree but i want to bring this back actually to desantis and to howard dean dean was the front runner as a moderate governor democratic leadership council kind of a guy who then got defined as a liberal. Well, defined himself as a liberal. Defined himself as a liberal. But also the, Democratic kind of got, the Democratic Party was not DLC language. My recollection is the war in Iraq that moved him, not the economics and on healthcare. He wasn't as liberal as a lot of liberals wanted him to be. One argument about the Dean campaign is the Dean scream did a man, right? So he's at a rally and he's doing the thing. The mics are really close to him. Right, that's what I should I'm, Stay with me. Oh my gosh, it's Howard Dean. It's the Dean scream. And if you're there in the room, it wasn't the screening, all that stuff. But it's also, but it reinforced an idea and a narrative that was beginning to form with Democratic elites anyway. Oh, he's really a little nutty, right? And the orange hat was he was flying in outsiders from outside Iowa to Canvas, reminding everybody he's a bit of an outsider and a bit of a nut, which isn't true. Like he's he's a smart, interesting guy. And I thought he did a good job as DNC chair. DeSantis might be creating the same narrative. Reasonable governor, but you know, he just doesn't think things all the way through. Look at the Disney thing. Not individually disqualifying, as you say, but it's one more piece of this narrative that the elites say, 
look, he's actually not thinking it through. He's running as a stunt as the I am almost Trump, but that's not really enough. We actually need a grown up. You know who's a grown up? Hutchinson. But that's the gap then then Hutchinson moves into. I think it's a little different because okay. the the problem for Dean in particular, like the, the screen was the punctuation, but what happened before that was his collapsing numbers in Iowa. Thank you for tuning in to two old political guys talk about the 2004 primaries. Um, but actually that is what we would do in office hours. So it's on brand for the show. That's true. So, bear, bear in mind the last presidential, I played a major role. I played a small role in 04. The last one actually, like was a senior saffron was 92. So the well, where I'm going with this is his collapsing numbers in Iowa are because he is the front runner kind of too early. Like he is the front runner for long enough that all of the other campaigns set their sights on him yeah. and then start delivering the message, not at each other. Like there's no crossfire. Everybody's aimed at him and saying, right. this guy is unserious. He's the governor from Vermont who you've never heard of from a state that is further to the left that like that, that makes him seem further to the left than Mondale. And with everybody taking aim at him and him being rough, roughly an unknown, people then revert to, because 2004 was defined by a Democratic Party that desperately just wanted to go after George W. Bush, yeah. right? He's the president who shouldn't have been president because yeah. of the 2000 Supreme Court decision. Like, we just need a candidate. And that's where everyone reverts to, all right, I guess John Kerry, we'll, we'll find, nobody's excited about him, let's just go with him. And that's the difference here is you don't have a Republican base that is desperately trying to take out Joe Biden. They don't like Joe Biden, but they don't like him in the same way they don't like every Democrat. And the defining thing about the race is really the former president, Donald Trump, is running again with all of his baggage, both the uh, indictments, but also the, man, everybody you endorse ends up being a nut bar and lose, like you've lost Georgia Senate seats for us three times. And now we're starting to not like the losing. That's the defining quality. So I think that plays out different because there's always going to be the question of who is actually going after Trump versus who is waiting for him to fall and then pick up the pieces. Do they target DeSantis a year from now? Or do they target Trump? And if it's not DeSantis, who is the anti-Trump? That's the real question. Yeah. I don't really buy Hutchinson being the answer to that because he just seems too boring. And also because I, I just don't think reasonable flies yet in this in that party network. Maybe it's Nikki Haley, or maybe it's, I don't know, it's a long time from here to there. I don't know. But I think that the argument then is that you're now constructing the narratives of who plays what role, what characters are playing out in this drama. And these are familiar dramas. And even if they're not actually familiar, even if there are real differences on the ground, and there probably are, party elites matter, media elites matter, donors matter. And we're the ones saying, ah, this looks like the last race I did in 04, 08, 92. Yeah, 2024 is different. Yeah, but not really different. And it's that kind of narrative that plays out. Um, so Dean, the Dean of the Iowa caucuses is not the Dean who is governor of Vermont. And he's not the right. Dean who is chair of the DNC. Right. Because the Dean who was governor of Vermont was too unknown to become president. And the Dean who chairs the DNC, he's no longer running. Right. And like right. It, it, it's different contexts. So I've got a new piece up on Substack titled Elon Musk Needs Professional Help. Yes, I'm very proud of that title. Yes, I am. Because Elon Musk just keeps on being bad at this. The, the real point of the piece is just to repost something that I wrote five months ago when Elon Musk had already messed up the rollout of Twitter Blue, right? So five months ago, the key thing that was already clear was, man, if you had actual professionals surrounding you 
there is definitely a path to roll out the new product of Twitter Blue, where you say to everyone, hey, you know what we're going to add in order to help us fight all of these bots that I say are a problem is a new pathway to Twitter verification. And we're going to set that up. We're going to charge a bit for it, but it's going to be a new additional thing that people might like. We're going to add a bunch of stuff on top of it. It'll be great. There's definitely a way to message that so that it seems reasonable and fine. And instead he came in and he was like, you know, we're getting rid of the lords and peasant system. The, you know, the, the elitist media snobs will no longer uh, like hoard it over you. Everybody gets a blue check. Just give me money. And of course, then all of the power users who had blue checks were like, um, you know that I have this so that it's harder to impersonate me when I give you content for free, right? Like he's just gone ahead and offended them and also had all of his power users think about how this is probably gonna go really bad. And of course, then it went really bad. So the latest update on this is he announced like a, what, like a week and a half ago that on April 1st, they would get rid of all the legacy blue checks, right? Everybody who's a power user who's already verified, that'll be gone. If you would like to be verified, you need to pay him eight bucks or 11 bucks if it's, if it's uh, through the iPhone because he doesn't want iTunes to get it, to get the cut. And verification isn't verification anymore. It's actually just a verification that you've given him your credit card info, which is a great way to fight all of the spammers that he claims exist. It's a terrible way to uh, fight like the crypto scammers and all the other people who are paying $8 because they get more than $8 of value out of it for their scams and, and uh, like all of their spamming. So he, he announces that all of the power users, like LeBron James is like, all right, guys, I'm going to lose the check mark because you know I'm not paying the five bucks. Like that goes terribly. He also announces that on April 15th, the only way to get into the algorithmic page, the For You page, is to be verified. So the idea is like, all right, that'll just be the page of blue checks. Everybody else, you're just in your, your uh, following page, which like, okay, that's all I use anyway. And then setting aside that like that led me to say over a week ago, like, you know what we're going to do then is just play a little game of you've got you to gotta block them all. You should be able to go to your algorithmic page and see nothing because you've blocked all the blue checks. People point out that like, that's a terrible idea. And he's like, oh, I forgot to mention that if you're following someone, they can also be in your algorithmic page because he's making shit up as he goes. But the bigger point here is then on April 1st, they don't get rid of any of the verified blue checks because it turns out that they have to do that all by hand. And there's like nobody who works at Twitter anymore. So they get rid of zero blue checks. They finally get rid of one, which is he gets mad at the New York Times and says, fine, theirs is gone. And then on Sunday, they just quietly change. And in, now in, when you click on somebody's check mark, instead of saying either this is a legacy verified account or this person is verified because they play, paid for Twitter blue, it now for all of them says they have a check mark either because they're legacy right. or for Twitter blue. So they backed off from everything and just said like, well, okay, the real problem that we need to solve this moment is everyone keeps on making fun of the Elon fanboys who are paying for this stuff. And if we just mix them together, then that'll go away. And I guess that's our real goal. So now everyone's making fun of that. Everyone's pointing out, this is still a garbage product, but now you've like made it even more garbage. Cause now I could spend eight bucks, create an account called Brett Stevens and have eight more than $8 worth of fun pretending to be Brett Stevens verified. Like I won't do that cause I'm lazy, but I could definitely have at least $10 worth of fun doing that. And Twitter stance is like, yeah, okay, we got money. That's great. Like the FTC is going to fine you a billion dollars when they get around to find, finding you. The EU is going to fine you like at least $500 million. Like this is going to be costly. And the point of the post is that all of this is what happens when 
you think you don't need comms professionals. You think you don't need implementation professionals. You think that like you and your like billionaire boys club can't just brainstorm this in a group text. Last time they brainstormed something in a group text, they brought down Silicon Valley Bank, which they was the bank they quite liked. They are huge dummies. And it's just proof that while like strategic political communication, like it's not rocket science. This is not the hardest job on earth. It is an actual must-have skill set because if you don't have it, all of your products fall, fall to shit through just un, like personal unforced errors. What a dummy. So it's, this is why this to me is also ties to DeSantis and it's something we've talked about on the podcast before and you and I both talk about with our students. It's strategic communications is actually strategic. That means thinking what now, what next, then what? So I'm going to do this thing. I wonder what's going to happen because I do this thing. After I do that thing and I respond to the response, what's going to happen after that, right? So you're a dog chasing a car. Great, you caught the car. What's you going to do? You're going to get your way to the driver's seat. You're going to let the car drag. You're going to like, you're going to hang on. Like, what are you doing with the car? And a lot of strategic comms isn't, hey, here's a clever thing. It'll get a lot of attention. Great, you got my attention. Now what? You either have to use that moment productively to create the policy change or get people to recycle or compost, whatever you want it to do. Or that moment goes away. They're looking to get my attention. You're not doing anything with it. All right, moving on. And then once they do the thing, I'm now recycling. Okay, then what happens? Like, are you? can you actually sell all the stuff, all the glass you're melting down? Turns out the answer is no. Then what happens? And Twitter is just this. Hey, we'll do this. Oh, hang on. That didn't go well. Let's do this. As opposed to, okay, we're going to do this. It's all system one thinking. There isn't a system two thinker in the house for you, Conrad Tversky fans in the audience. What, what? I mean, if it's the dog that's <laughs> the car, yeah, like you want to at least have some uh, brainstorming on what's the driver going to do when we catch it. Right, like, right. Think more than one step ahead, particularly right. in Elon's case, because the guy's got three other companies. And I don't think anyone is looking at his inability to look one step ahead in managing Twitter and saying, you know what I really want is for him to install a microchip inside of my brain. And or, yeah, I think I should live in his Mars colony. This really seems like somebody who's figured out the details of how that'll go. Let me trust him with any of these things. His entire fortune is built on convincing people that he lives in the future and has everything worked out. And he is now on full display showing, actually, I'm just rich. What a doofus. Him and, and DeSantis, what now, what next, then what? They got the what now, got the attention. Turns out politics, policy happens in more than 48 hour increments. Mm -hmm. Like a week later, you look like a dingbat. Disney said, okay, we're going to wait for the king's kids to die. Then you'll win. Damn it. Why hadn't I thought of that? Because you're ready to come, Steve. Doofus TV. and dingbat today. We are going through some words. A little bit of anger. A little bit of anger. So talk about substantive stuff. We've got about 10 minutes. Substantive. Can we talk about substantive stuff? Go for it. So today is Giving Day at the George Washington University. So to all of our students out there, we're paying $75,000 a year. Thank you so much. We'd like another $1,000. There's a great John Mulaney sketch on this where he gets mad. You know, this is after he's graduated a long time ago from Georgetown, but talks about his university reaching out for money. And he said, what did you do? What did you do with the money? You hundreds of thousands of dollars. You spent it? Now you want more money? But it, but we all, but they all do this, and the alumni give money, and I give money to Emerson College, my my alma mater. I, I gave they, to Oberlin last week. They asked, and I was like, oh yeah, I love Oberlin. Here you go. 
Right. And so I think for comms, from a comms perspective, I find this fascinating mm -hmm. because you are donating not to Oberlin today, not to the, you know, March, April 2023 Oberlin. You're donating to an Oberlin you remember from when you were 20 years old. And it was different then. Right. I donate to Emerson College that mm -hmm. is in a different part of town. Like I went to I gave a talk at Emerson a bunch of years ago saying it's great to be back. Well, actually not back because it's not there. And I made some joke about geography and it's a hazy remembrance of what it was when I was there. And universities cultivate this to create um, what Ernest Borman called a rhetorical fantasy or Kenneth Burke also had, you know, looked at notions of consubstantiation saying we are this. We, you create a community with its own language, its own logo. At GW, we're voting on a new, it's not called a mascot, it's called a something else. Because colonials, it turns out colonial isn't bad. And, and sadly, it's not going to be the foggy bottoms. It turns out it's not going to be the foggy bottoms. But you're donating to a thing and a story and a gate and GW has a hippo and all of that. So as comms people, I find this fascinating, right? So how do you get somebody who hasn't attended George Washington University or Emerson or Oberlin or whatever in decades to write a big check to a place to which they wrote big checks? knowing that the check is not going to go to their hazy remembrance of their past, but to some student or some major or something they've never heard of to move it into a future that they cannot yet imagine. As a comms, as a comms thing, I find that fascinating. Yeah, and I, what stands out to me is you only have a few tools in your toolbox, right? Because what you can do is you can try to organize, while there are students there, a set of traditions that you can then re-invoke you can try to like do really well in the NCAA tournament. You know, that's going to give them some sort of rah-rah college pride. Uh, that is not easy to do for most universities. I can tell you that Oberlin Emerson, not really going to win the NCAA tournament. But that said, Emerson <laughs> Athletics, though, has, so I played soccer at Emerson. We were a club team and we lost to the Massachusetts College of Optometry. We were bad. But one of the challenges universities have is attracting men. More women go to college than, than men. And you have to attract men. And so... Schools have athletic programs because that helps attract men. And so Emerson actually now has a full-on athletics program. Emerson Lions, or Lions Roar. Well, at least uh, if you know really wants to attract men, maybe go for Foggy Bottoms. Maybe the, the Foggy Bottoms. You know what I'm saying. I don't even know what that means. But Emerson actually now is bragging about their athletics. And they they had a nationally ranked, Division Three, but their um, women's soccer was nationally ranked they actually do reasonably well in their conference and a couple of different sports, but it's a way to get money now. And it's the, hey, can you give and can you get money? So they've invented a tradition of athletics uh, that didn't exist to raise, raise profile, to attract students and to attract money. And I, I write checks. I was the, the alumni athlete of the year or something a couple of years ago and the whole, which is great and it's cool, but it's like, oh, right, here's another tradition that kind of existed and kind of not that gives me a reason to invest and I'm going to write a check and I'll talk to prospective students and I'll keep coming back. So it's rhetorical construction of community that results in recruiting students who write checks and getting me personally to write checks. So there's the rhetorical structure, uh, creation of community, but there's also, I, I always focus on the events, yeah. right? Like the things that you are doing, yeah. right? So I, I remember upon the week of my graduation at Oberlin was the first time that they gave me booze for free. And I was like, oh, that's because your relationship to me is changing. You yeah, would like yeah. me to drink some champagne and think fond thoughts so that you can yeah. then hit me up with that in the future, yeah. right? And I don't do a lot of stuff with the Oberlin Alumni Network because like small kids, but 
the planning of events so that your interactions with your alumni are something other than, hey, it's been a year, can we have some more money? Yeah. The more you can do to make the alumni feel like they are still part of this community, but really this community is the one that they remember from 20 years ago, the more success you're gonna have with that. And that's about planning some set of events so that it is not just a donor relationship. The more like the, the people who are willing to talk to prospective admits are then also the people who are more likely to give money because they are thinking about how they're part of this community. Whereas the people whose main relationship is, I just paid off my student debt and now you want more money, probably not so much. But, it's, but this is also similar to political campaigns, right? Where really what campaigns want is your money because yeah. that's what they need. They've got a bunch of smart people at the top. They need you to knock on doors. If you're only to knock on doors, make phone calls, just write checks. But you can't say, hey, you're a Democrat, give me more money. It's a levels of meaningful engagement. So I want your feedback. I want your input. Will you participate in this conference call? For universities, it's similar. It's not just events, though. It's also a, we have a set of traditions. We have a set of values. We've got a fight song. We've got school colors. Um, we honor faculty. I, a professor that I had when I was there, a guy named Mike Brown, was recently celebrated his 50th, 5-0 year teaching at Emerson legendary hard-ass professor and we raised money for a scholarship for him um, he's a one of the very few black professors when i was in school there and so it's to get to fund kids from communities that otherwise might not have a chance to go to emerson to study political communication and, and strategic communication and we all remember mike brown because mike has this aura the way you know your students have the carp jokes we had that for for mike but it's it's so you've got a mascot, you've got a gathering place. You're, it's, it's an identity, as you say, that universities do this well, do it when you show up. Princeton is remarkable at this. If you look at alumni giving rates, most universities, I think, hang around in the 20s, 20% of alumni donate. Princeton is up in the 80s. Yeah. And, it's, and I don't know if you know any Princeton alumni, but during the NCAA tournament, when they had their little mini run, they were insufferable. I mean, I know some Princeton alumni, including one who's a colleague of ours. Uh, I won't comment on whether or not Princeton alumni are generally insufferable, though I did go to grad school at Penn, so I am required legally to have an opinion on that. Uh, fair enough, fair enough. But it's this notion of the Princeton Tigers and the orange and black stripes, and you're part of this thing, and that's inventive. And here at GW, I think Stephen Joel Trachtenberg, a couple of presidents ago, said out loud that appeared in the New York Times that universities are like vodka, clear, clear flavorless liquid. What changes is the label. And so he made the label for GW better and the quality then followed the label, including we have a hippo on campus, a hippo statue, our students well know, and our students know the story of the hippo, that were the hippos, were the, the unofficial mascot and all this kind of stuff. And the story that Trachtenberg used to say, again, out loud and in public, was that he was on Martha's Vineyard, drunk, went to an antique shop or some shop like that and saw this big brass hippo and bought it. And his wife said, you may not bring that home. So he installed it on campus. Right. That is our tradition. A so drunken college president bought something his wife wouldn't let in the house. But it's a thing, right? So it's part of now the lore. And we invest in that lore. So why give to GW? Because of the story. Right. Which I think is, again, I think Ernest Borman, when he writes about fantasy theme analysis, um, does a great job of this. And again, I've got Emerson Lyons in my SMPA thing, because I'm one of these. I've got some wrap-ups before we go. Before we go, two things I want to flag for the pod people, people of the pod. One is hilarious, one is alarming. I'm going to start with hilarious. Sealand, 
I'm holding this up. I'll put it in the footnotes, which are on peterloach.com, and we'll go on Medium. A couple of guys a bunch of decades ago occupied an abandoned fort off the coast of England, declared it a sovereign nation called Sealand. It is half the size of a soccer field, and they have a national soccer team. Amazing. The alarming piece, this should be alarmed, from Al Jazeera, a giant meatball made from flesh cultivated using the DNA of an extinct woolly mammoth has been unveiled at Nemo, a science museum in the Netherlands. Since a mammoth's DNA sequence obtained by the organization had a few gaps, elephant DNA was inserted to complete it. The meatball, which has the aroma of crocodile, which has the aroma of crocodile meat, is currently not for consumption. So we have a giant mammoth meatball made partially of elephant DNA that smells like crocodile that no one can eat. There's just a lot going on there. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> things that we're doing instead of adapting to climate change. Yeah. Um, what's it? <laughs> Look at all the things we could do science around instead of the hard stuff. Elon Musk, eat your heart out. All right. I think that's the pod. Uh, follow us, plug your stuff. Uh, Substack. Follow me on Substack. Twitter's falling apart. DaveCarp.substack.com. Follow me on Twitter because I like things that are falling apart at P-L-O-G-E. And uh, thank you, people of the pod. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye.